Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. So Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, I chatted with him here in the past hour. 67 new cases today, 57 of them in Winnipeg. Five-day positivity test rate is at 3%, 863 active cases now. Of course, yesterday, three more people died, 27 dead now in the province, 25 people in hospital, six in ICU. Uh, Those are some of the COVID-19 numbers from today. 67 new cases in the province, 57 of them in Winnipeg. And that's kind of where we start the conversation with Dr. Jason Kindrichuk. I recorded uh, the chat with him here at my home studio. And uh, just for fun, as uh, you're listening to my uh, chat with Dr. Jason, if you can hear a crash in the background, Hershey somehow, I I shut my door, but Hershey somehow got in here and she was messing around and knocked something over. So listen for that, but also some, I, I think some good questions and some great answers from Dr. Jason Kindrichuk. Listen. Jason, when can we expect our numbers here in the Winnipeg area to start coming down? They're still fairly high, higher than I thought they'd be at this point. I think we're all feeling that way, right? And I think part of it is trying to understand how much, uh, you know, how much community transmission are we seeing of the virus and how quickly can we counteract that transmission with, with the new restrictions. And it's always this kind of delicate balance. It's kind of like two boxers, uh, in a ring where one is throwing, you know, a punch, the other one is defending and, and it's a bit back and forth. So I think for us, you know, as new restrictions come in, it usually takes at least a couple of cycles of, uh, of the virus, which really is about two weeks uh, in the average person. Uh, so, you know, usually around four weeks to, to really see if there is uh, a, a true uh, effect that, that is occurring. And, you know, for us, we're, you know, we're a couple of weeks into some of the new restrictions. It's going to be a couple of weeks yet. And, and I think we, we have to not get so caught up in the day-to-day trends but more so what the overall trend looks like, um, you know, on multiple days. And hopefully we will start to see some of that going back down. Um, but, but it, you know, again, we, we, none of us can predict what, what exactly is going to happen. I heard a new term the other day. Twindemic. Have you heard that before? And where are we at? Where are we at? I have had a few questions about this as of late. And where are we at with the flu out there along with COVID-19? Man, this is such a great question, right? So we, we know that at the end of uh, the, the last flu season, so early 2020, there, there was a concern that, um, you know, what would happen with people that were co-infected with influenza and uh, th- this particular virus, SARS-CoV-2. And, of course, we know that restrictions came in place and lockdowns came in place. And really, influenza um, uh, transmission within Canada and, and arguably most of uh, the Northern Hemisphere dropped down substantially. So we, we've tried to kind of gain some data from what we've seen in the southern hemisphere this year, most notably Australia. Uh, in the early phase of their winter, it, it looked like there was actually going to be quite a bit of concern, um, but influenza cases dropped, and they dropped drastically. Uh, we, we don't know for certain that that's based on, obviously, physical distancing and the use of masks. There likely is uh, you know, a pretty strong correlation there. Um, so hopefully we, we may dodge that bullet because of the, the restrictions that we're undergoing and all the extra attention we're putting to, to hygiene and, and masking, but, but we don't know. And our, our greatest way of battling back against any sort of twindemic is simply to get the flu vaccine this year and ensure that we are doing everything we can to, to remain safe. 
What do we know about the flu this year at this point? Anything? Not really much. And, and that's the problem that we're running into is that if you, you know, again, we, we try to gain some knowledge based on what's happening in the southern hemisphere. And it's not always perfect, but it gives us some idea of what strains may be the predominant strains and what may be circulating. This year, because Australia and the southern hemisphere did not see a strong flu season, I don't think we know what to expect. So, you know, I, we're all kind of sitting a little bit with bated breath. Um, trying to monitor uh, the situation in real time and uh, and trying to ensure that we have a good response um, if there are concerns. But from a research standpoint, we are we are trying to figure out what what concerns there are because this is game this is uncharted territory for all of us. How long should somebody wait from taking the test to getting the results? Because we're hearing some stories that it's taking seven days, 10 days, it shouldn't take that long, should it? It shouldn't. And, and we get into a position when we start seeing, you know, the, the test results, you know, going out to multiple days, where, whether it's four days or longer. Um, now we get into a concern that by the time that person gets the results back, the likelihood is that if they're positive, they likely may no longer be transmitting. Um, well, what's happened in that period between uh, when they got tested and getting the results back? Have they ensured that they remained uh, quarantined or isolated? Have they made sure that they have not uh, been in contact? So for, for us right now, we, we need to see uh, you know, a faster return on, on test results back for people so that they have a better indication of what they need to do next. And we're hearing of different procedures at the various testing sites. Some will take your name and number, call you when you're further up in line, closer to getting in. Some you have to wait, period. Uh, why the differences? And uh, I, I don't know, that seems unusual to me. Yeah, you know, I think what we're seeing a little bit, I mean, I, you know, I'm certainly I'm not a public health, uh, you know, official, so I can't comment directly on that for, for what's going on. But I think what we're seeing is, is response in, in real time and trying to coordinate in real time. Um, you know, the, the, the unfortunate aspect is we've had months to prepare. So, um, you know, we're, I think, all hoping that there's going to be better coordination from site to site. But obviously, the, uh, the, the playing field is changing also on a daily basis. So some of this may be just simply due to the fact that if, if there's an overwhelming uh, number of cases that are coming, that they have to change uh, the, the particular criteria um, for, for record keeping uh, at that site or, or how they're doing, um, you know, some of the, uh, the, the callbacks or, or uh, you know, uh, having people being checked in line. Um, I think it's going to be dependent on, on the situation. And again, I think public health is doing what and regional health authorities are doing what they can, uh, but we're all adapting to the situation as uh, it continues to unfold. We found out this week 49, I think, is the number 49 cases of COVID-19 in schools in the first month. To me, that sounds better than the number I thought it was going to be. Well, I, you know, I think that's the thing, right, is that there, I think we were all maybe hoping somewhere, you know, as infinitely small of a chance as it was that we wouldn't see school cases. But the reality was we were going to see some. Um, now we're kind of getting through those first few weeks. We're getting through some of the kinks in the system that, that have needed to be worked out. And what we're recognizing is that, yes, there are going to be cases, but if we identify them fast enough and if we're able to get those, those cases notified and get people uh, quarantined or isolated or, or at least, uh, you know, get public health officials involved as quickly as possible, um, we can stop the chain of transmission. So we can't necessarily stop the individual cases, but if we can stop that virus from spreading from person to person, that gives us a leg up. And, and I think we're, you know, I'm hoping that this trend continues. Um, we, we just need to keep vigilant. And one more question, and then I'll let you go, Jason. We've got a couple of holidays, Thanksgiving and then Halloween. What's your best advice to people? 
<laughs> my, be- my best advice, honestly, is uh, do what you were doing in the springtime when we were able to get cases under control. So keep, keep conscious of, of masking. Uh, you know, there, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of up and down and, and a lot of noise in, in the background on, on masks. Um, they, they are useful. So use masks when and where possible. Keep distanced as much as possible. Keep your bubbles small. Um, and, and just maintain vigilant on hygiene. I think we, we want to be uh, as safe as possible, and uh, if we, you know, we're going to have to give up a few things, but we hopefully can get through this as quick as possible with, uh, with obviously, the, the holiday season uh, in December rolling around quickly. I lied. That was my second-last question. I had one more for you. I just thought of it. Donald Trump, have you been watching that gong show? Uh, Al, listen, what I could say is that there are no shortage of four-letter expletives that get thrown out of my mouth on a daily basis right now. Wow. Jason, thanks for your time again. Thank you so much, Hal. Take care of yourself. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Prof and Canadian Research Chair of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, answering some of the big questions today around COVID-19. Uh, he does a great job. We're, we're so lucky to have access to him. And I called the uh, uh, Trump COVID show a gong show uh, before the, the Trump people start getting angry and sending text messages and emails. I had I was thinking about this last night watching the debate, and we're going to talk about the debate after the one thirty news here with our CBS reporter, one of our CBS reporter friends. Um, you know, there. here's the thing. There are some good things that Donald Trump has done as president. I, I will give him that. And um, but this, the way he has handled uh, COVID nineteen, and even just the way he's handled his own uh, infection uh, with with this virus, it, it really, it really is a gong show. I'm sorry. Like you know, I, I give him credit for some of the things he's done, um, but uh, I think uh, a lot of the stuff that he's done is. Uh, is really really questionable and the handling of covid-19 has just been uh, has it's been a gong show i'm sorry it it really has been so so yesterday in the throne speech we we heard about the the big uh, education uh changes that the premier and his government here in manitoba would like to see will be boosted less money uh to the big salaries and the red tape and more to teaching in in classrooms uh your overall uh, initial thought to what was said yesterday well first of all how the the initial thought that i have is is to put this in historical perspective uh, many folks out there might be of the opinion that there could be significant and and sweeping, sweeping changes within the system. But what we need to recognize is that we have not had in Manitoba a significant systemic change in the K-12 system for over 60 years. Uh, And that dates all the way back to the McFarland Commission in the late 1950s. So uh, this might be a certainly a political neutral, politically neutral statement to make actually, but it, it certainly holds up historically. Since the 1930s, Hal, uh, only the Conservative Party governments in Manitoba have ever been responsible for initiating substantial change in the education system at the deep systemic level. So this is not new to the government of the day, and it will be important for us to recognize uh, how we may have uh, a fit in that for those who are very much invested uh, in education. Uh, The other point that I would like to make just uh, initially is to recognize that 
that even in 1957, the opening statement in that Royal Commission on Education pretty much nailed it by saying, the world has changed. And I think, Hal, that statement that the world has changed is just as important and significant in 2020-21 as it was in the late 1950s. So I, I think yeah. we should frame this historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're certainly, you know, things have really changed here in 2020, that's for sure. And a full review of the education system, K-12, to uh, will be released in the not-too-distant future, I think were the words uh, that Premier Pallister used. Um, do we need a review? How much of a mess is our current education system in here in Manitoba? Well, I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a mess, hell, but what right. I would describe it as... I would describe it as being anachronistic. It's out of date. It's out of sync. It's out of time uh, with education in the modern era. So perhaps one of the things that the COVID-19 period is providing for us is, is a real significant rattling of the cage across all of society. So this might actually be a good time uh, to be looking at some systemic change. And, and in terms of looking at the system as a whole, uh, it's very, very easy to be an armchair critic of something as large as the education system. Uh, but for those of us who, are, who very much support the system, we need to recognize that we've got to move the system into the 21st century. And next to health care, uh, it, of course, is the second most significant government expenditure for any Canadian province. So if there are efficiencies that we can bring to the system, we need to look at that. If there are structural changes in how we govern the system, such as school divisions, school boards, and, and trustees, and so on, uh, that needs to be looked at uh, seriously and significantly. What change or two changes, three changes, uh, would you make uh, if you were writing this review that we'll get a look at soon, uh, just based on what we've seen in the past six or seven months with COVID-19? Because I think education, like many other sectors of our life, are going to change forever, likely, because of this pandemic. How will education change? What needs to be changed because of COVID-19? If we frame it specifically, as you've mentioned, uh, within the context of of a pandemic, uh, the most visible change that's going to take place uh, rests with where students are going to be doing their learning. Not so much the what, uh, but where. So the blended classroom that involves uh, off-site as well as on-site learning is something that could be with us uh, for many, many years to come. And perhaps that's going to be one of the permanent changes that's going to take place. Uh, the second change, and, and this one perhaps may be the most contentious and, and the one that will perhaps be the real um, deep roots pulling up within the system, and, and that, for me, would be a recommendation uh, that the sheer size and number of school divisions in the province must be reduced dramatically. Uh, I would probably imagine that there's, that there's a system out there that could be designed uh, around no more than four or five school divisions, Hal, not unlike what we have uh, with the RHAs uh, in healthcare. Uh, we are top, top heavy with administrative costs and that is just simply not sustainable going forward. The third change that I, I think probably will be coming down the pike, and this one too will be both contentious and perhaps very controversial, 
Uh, I think that it's time to look at taking teacher training out of the faculties of education in our colleges and universities in favor of a completely different model that has our teacher candidates spending much, much more time on the ground uh, right within active school settings. So in other words, trying to find a better balance between a theoretical approach to education and also how it's grounded practically in the day-to-day in the classroom. And both of those last two changes, Hal, would represent tens of millions of dollars of savings to the system uh, over lengths of time, uh, even if we were just looking at certain of those efficiencies. So yeah, those, and, those and certainly come to mind. Right, and, and I'll just add to your second uh, point there. You know, these superintendents and other uh, officials that are making three, three fifty, four hundred thousand dollars Maybe it's a drop in the bucket, but when you've got several superintendents over several school divisions, it adds up quickly, right? And and that's that's been a, a real pain in my backside uh, for a long time. I've I've had heated interviews on my show to the point where some school officials now won't even come on my show and talk to me anymore, <laughs> and and I just ask the tough questions about you know some of the people in our school system. Uh, making that kind of money and and i'm not saying they're not valuable but there are too many of them they're making too much money and that money is better spent with teachers and in the classroom where it will really benefit kids and and here's where we may be able to strike a a happy medium uh there uh uh, i've had many wonderful relationships with school superintendents over the 25 years that, that i've been in education and and yes it's a very very demanding role uh you need to be able to attract top educational talent But at the same time, we simply don't need as many school divisions as we have. So what I might recommend is is that at the most senior level, so equivalent to superintendents and assistant superintendents and so so on, uh, if we significantly reduce the number of school divisions, let's say to four or five, uh, we do need very strong and visionary leadership. And I would describe that as being more like a CEO or an executive director. And those individuals should then report directly to the Deputy Minister of Education because that's the kind of accountability that will allow the government of the day uh, to be able to see that that its agenda and its policy and priority positions are likely going to be bearing fruit in the system. So, uh, yes, those salaries can be large. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a complex issue, Hal. Yeah. But if we were working with three or four or five school divisions, uh, that issue would probably just simply go away. Sure. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And, and Dr. Murray, final question while I've got you, I've got to ask you, how have we done uh, so far in schools with COVID-19? I was talking to Dr. Jason Kindrichuk today. Um, 50 cases, I think, in the first month of school, kids back to school for a month, uh, 49 or 50 cases. Uh, I think that's better than what I expected. How are you feeling about a month into back to school and about that many COVID cases? Uh, I think it's actually quite wonderful, Hal. Uh, Our teachers and staff within the schools, they're a very courageous group of individuals because of their own vulnerability. Uh, The kids, of course, are much, much less physiologically vulnerable, but they are emotionally and psychologically more vulnerable than the adult population. So being in school where it's safe, where it's coordinated, where it's structured and where their friendships are is the very, very best place. And we probably need to look no further than Denmark uh, to see how a system like that can function beautifully, even within kind of the long shadow of, of something like a pandemic. 
So in my estimation, uh, those COVID numbers are vanishingly small uh, compared to what we might have expected. And, and you pointed that out. So by and large, uh, let's keep moving ahead, but moving ahead with all of the appropriate cautions. And it's very important to have the data uh, right at hand and to be able to be responsive when, when necessary. John, thanks a lot for this. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Hal. Uh, always a pleasure. And, and the best to you and all of your colleagues there. Carolyn Klassen from Connexus Counseling. Come on in here. Nice to chat with you after a few weeks off. How have you been? Oh, it's so great to talk to you. I'm so glad that you're back. Yeah, good to be back. Um, I'm refreshed and, and ready to go. So uh, masks. I played a report earlier, and, and I think it's maybe a bigger issue in the States than it is here. Uh, but here in Winnipeg, in public places, uh, we have to wear a mask. And I have not run into anybody not wearing a mask where they should have been. But it happens. Is there a polite way, the right way to say to somebody, hey, come on, man, put on a mask? Well, that's tricky. I I think I'm hearing lots of places or lots of families where um, as they're heading towards maybe very small family gatherings this weekend where, you know, parents are just inviting their adult children, that there's some conflict with and discomfort within families um, when different family members have different comfort levels with mask wearing. Um, but I think when it happens between strangers, it's particularly stressful because if anybody yells at me about anything in public, um, it's not like I'm going to yell back, but I'm going to have trouble hearing what they've said because when somebody yells at somebody else in public, that feels dangerous and it feels alarming. And so often when if, if you yell at somebody to mask up or put your mask on, uh, people hear the tone and the energy and often what is the fear that's turned anger um, people hear that the tone of it more than they hear the message. And so when people react to the anger and the energy of it, they're not particularly cooperative. Their nervous system gets aggravated and agitated, and um, they're likely to push away and be less likely to put their mask on. And so I think we need to recognize that when we see people out in public that aren't wearing their masks in a way that makes us uncomfortable, barking at them to put their mask on is probably not going to be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for the most part, people have been really good. Sam, same with shaking hands. I haven't shaken a hand in, in seven months. Uh, Truly, but, you know, right? when you see when you see somebody that you normally would shake their hand, you just kind of go, hey, we'll shake hands when this is all over. And they smile and, it, and it's usually OK. Uh, you're right, though. I think it's when it's strangers, when it's somebody you don't know. Um, and, and I get it. I understand, you know, it's a, there are rules and public health orders in place. But you're right. I think it's all in the delivery, how how you uh, present to somebody, hey, could you put a mask on? It's it's actually uh, required. You brought up Thanksgiving um, dinners and, and festivities this weekend, and obviously things are going to be smaller and more within our bubbles and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But, but the pandemic really has added uh, to a holiday gathering, albeit small, some new challenges, right? Some some new things that we need to think about and consider. There is. Um, I know that uh, it's a, Thanksgiving is a time when I typically get together with my parents and my siblings and all of our kids. And, you know, there's, you know, close to 20 of us and we enjoy that time together. And we had it scheduled and booked. Um, and then the whole thing was canceled. And um, I got a text from one of my kids like, they're disappointed. We look forward to these things. This is a chance to be together. And so... 
it's just one more loss that COVID has given us and that Code Orange has given us. Um, I am encouraging people to still find ways of acknowledging the weekend and figuring out how to do it. Um, nature has given us a gift. I see that the forecast is like 20 degrees-ish on Sunday. Uh, and so um, that allows us the opportunity to have small groups eating outdoors for people who might otherwise not be able to come over at all. They may be able to come over. They may be able to come over with masks. Uh, and so people may not be able to eat together, but they can enjoy a time together because it's the visiting over food that's way more important than just the food itself. And so can you find a way of capturing little bits of it? Um, can everybody go over to Grandma and Grandpa's uh, to visit them from their front porch um, on a drive-by basis so that it's a come-and-go thing so that people, we don't exceed the number of of allowable people and we keep the risk low, but grandma and grandpa may not get a hug, but they get to look at people's eyes and see them smile and hear the greeting. I think it's, I think we just need to put a little extra energy and creativity into finding a way to be together this weekend. Yeah, I agree completely. I, I wrote in, in one of my son columns the same thing that I think maybe it's even more important this year that we celebrate in some safe way thanksgiving and show the gratitude for the things we have in our life and i think i just hear people being so much more aware of things that they're grateful for because um before covid we could just take things for granted and now being able to you know have a day that's warm enough that we can visit on the back deck with somebody it's there's a preciousness to it and we realize what a treat it is to be able to have that visit and how special that person is because we've missed having them in our lives and so i think there's this um, extra thankfulness to this Thanksgiving weekend. And so I would just encourage people to, when you're at those very small gatherings, can you spend a time saying, this is what I'm grateful for, and this is what I'm particularly grateful for in you, um, or because of you, this is what you give to my life, that there's a way that we can pour into each other's lives to say, this is how I am grateful that you make my life better. And I hear from people every day by text and email and sometimes on the phone as well. I hear from people who feel differently about the pandemic and this virus and how it's being handled. Some people think uh, it should be handled differently. I understand that there's disagreement on some of this stuff. But just keep this in mind as we head into Thanksgiving weekend. 27 Manitobans will not be able to celebrate Thanksgiving. Hmm. And how many people will be impacted by those 27 empty chairs this year? That that brings it all home, doesn't it, Hal? Um, that there are families that are grieving and there will be empty places at the table, the lawn chairs in the circle in the backyard um, because of people that have succumbed. And uh, I think it's, it's just very powerful to know that our actions today uh, – help shape how many people will be sick and potentially very sick and lose their life two weeks from now. Let's talk now about changing the way booze is sold in the province of Manitoba. Dr. Jason Childs is an associate prof of economics at the University of Regina, and he joins us on the phone now. Uh, Dr. Childs, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, you did not write the book on this, but you did do the study, uh, and I, I went through much of the study today. Um, let me see if I got most of it right, and then you can weigh in after this. So uh, if we were to go more in a privatized way as opposed to government selling booze in the province, we would see more selection, probably more mm-hmm. products, but they would cost us more. 
there would be more jobs, but those jobs would pay less, and our government, the province, would make less money off the sale of alcohol. Have I got it right? Well, that's what we said in the report, although the Saskatchewan experience has been slightly different on at least one of those measures. Hmm. Go ahead. Tell us about it. So what the, the government revenue didn't decline at all after privatization in Saskatchewan. In fact, uh, if you do it as a percentage of sales, they actually increased ever so slightly. Hmm. So is this a good idea or a bad idea? You know, it's it's been talked about for a long time. Um, and I, I think uh, critics, I think people are open to the idea, although we did have uh, the union uh, leader on our air today not happy about the idea. But I think people are open to it. But, it, it, you know, is it does it come with some good and some bad in your, your best estimate here? Absolutely. There's going to be some changes, and, and some people are going to be harmed by those changes. Primarily, it's going to be uh, government employee or employees of government-run liquor stores. Uh, they're going to see their wages reduced. Uh, but other than that, uh, there's not a lot of negative consequence here that we've seen in, in our studies that, uh, a few years ago or in Saskatchewan's experience since then. Why is it a good idea for government to get out of this business? Then? Well, you have to think about what government is good at. Is, is government particularly good at retail? And the answer is, in my opinion, no. So let's have government focus on what it's good at and, and not do things it's not good at. And it's also a little bit awkward in a, a hybrid system like you have in Manitoba with the off-sale side of things to have somebody acting both as a player in the game and a referee at the same time and that can lead to some some unusual outcomes what else might we learn from the experiences of other provinces here um, well, we do see uh, there is an appetite of the private sector to get into this space and to build stores or retrofit stores and to, to really expand the product line. One of the things that uh, didn't come out of the study that uh, has come up since in discussions with uh, microbrewers is they're really impressed at how keen the private retailers are to have the locally produced micro products in their, on their shelves and how prominently they feature them. Hmm. And we're seeing a lot of those microbreweries here. So that that's definitely an area that is growing here in, in Winnipeg and in Manitoba. And you're, you're saying that retailers, private retailers, uh, would be more willing to promote and put those products at the top of the shelf, eh? I, 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 I don't know if I'd say more willing, but they've definitely demonstrated they're very willing and very excited to do it. Hmm. Interesting. Hey, listen, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Jason Childs, Associate Prof of Economics at the University of Regina. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.